this is a year where there's going to be a lot of changes that are happening. Um, for the last six years, the Senate has had the same leadership team with Pro Tem Greg Treat. He is terming out this year. The House is on its eighth year of having uh, Charles McCall as their speaker. He is also terming out this year. So both the House and the Senate are having uh, leadership races. And so, um, and who wins leadership decides who is in that leadership team, who are committee chairs, and kind of what the direction of those chambers are going to be for that for that following two years. So. Uh, I think the House representatives and Representative Lowe, correct me if I'm wrong. House representatives have a set date in your rules when that when that election is. The Senate is different than that. The Senate is when the uh, our caucus chair, who is Senator Dave Rader out of Tulsa, um, when Senator Rader decides to call for the election, he has to give a three-week notice, and then we have we have we have our election for our pro tem race. So the race started last year um, when the candidates started campaigning and start trying to build their build their coalition. So we have three senators that have. Uh, publicly announced that they're going that they are candidates for the office which is senator greg mccourtney out of ada senator um uh, casey murdoch out of felt oklahoma who knows where felt oklahoma is at <laughs> felt oklahoma is in the southwest corner of the oklahoma panhandle senator murdoch lives closer to the new mexico and colorado state capitals than he does the oklahoma state capitol <laughs> And then the other one is David Bullard out of the Durant area. Um, so those are the three candidates. So Senator Rader did call for um, the election. He sent the email out yesterday. So in the first two weeks of February, we'll be having that. His goal is trying to get that election behind us so it's not part of what all we're dealing with. We're considering everything everything else in the legislative session. So um, And so how that would affect you all is, and I'll just kind of tell you about the candidates. So... Um, Senator Murdoch is a cattle rancher in Southwest, part of the Panhandle, um, and he's he used to be a House member. Now he's in the Senate, and uh, and so he's running. You have Senator uh, Bullard, who is out of the D. Durant area. He's a former educator, and uh, um, he was elected, I believe, in 2018. And then Senator McCourtney is a senator out of out of Ada, and he was elected same year I was elected in 2016. So that's kind of the race that's going on right now. We should know probably with hopefully the first half of February, and it's called the presumptive vote, which means that that's just the reason we have it then is so we can start working on the transition from one leadership team to a new leadership team. Um, but in November, when actually new senators get elected, we have an actual vote. So the election can actually happen twice, and there can be a change in that. doesn't usually happen, um, but it can. And so usually the presumptive is, ends up being the, the, uh, the, the final person. But if the person, uh, people who didn't win, want to challenge him in November when new senators get elected, that's always, a, always an option. And that did happen this, this uh, a year, a little over a year ago when there was not a race in the regular session, but there was a challenge when it came in November. And so that ended up as a 21-19 vote. So it was a very, very tight vote. And uh, so that's kind of what's going on in the in the in the leadership race, and and who wins that race, well, like I said, will determine who all your committee chairs are, and who decides which legislation moves forward, which legislation doesn't move forward. And so um, it's a pretty important deal, and all three individuals are quite a bit different. And so we'll see where all that all that lays out. Um, so that's what's going on kind of in the Senate. Uh, if you all noticed, the governor called for a special session starts a week from today. Um, don't know kind of why he didn't wait. His deal, he wants a tax cut, but there is an issue with, you know, the equalization numbers. We have the numbers that came out in December, but the final numbers that we build our budget off of aren't actually out until the middle of February. 
And so we really can't set a budget. We really don't know where it's at. So right now, the December numbers are saying we have about $250 million plus or minus more than what we would have last year to spend. So that's a nice area for like a quarter percent income tax cut. So that's there. But we don't know what the actual numbers are. And last year, between the December numbers and the February numbers, there was a $600 million drop in the numbers. So why he's calling for a special session before we have those actual numbers, I don't know. I've actually got three tax cut bills sitting out there because I'm eager to maybe do something as well. Um, but we really can't do anything until we know what those numbers are. And if it, there's a drop again this year, I mean, it could very easily put us put us under the uh, under the threshold to where we don't have any money to to, to to make cuts, or we need to cut government back in order in order to do that. So, but that's a discussion we need to have once we actually have have the actual numbers in. So, um, anyway, that's kind of what's kind of going with that special session. I'm not sure what's going to happen next week. Um, if it's just going to be a gavel in, because we're constitutionally obligated to to, uh, to to answer the governor's call for the special session. We're, we'll have a caucus meeting on uh, Monday morning to decide kind of what the Senate's going to do with that. And I don't know if there is an answer right now. So um, kind of going on some of the things that I'm going to be working on this year is uh, um, one of my positions in the Senate is I'm the Senate Energy Chair, and the Senate Energy Chair is Energy, Telecommunications, and Utilities. Um, so after what happened two years ago to where you know we were paying, what was it, $20,000 for natural gas during the winter storm that we had and uh, we ended up with over a billion dollars in debt that was put on our on the customers of Oklahoma utilities we've been working really hard trying to make sure that never happens again and that our grid is set up well that we have the power that we need and that we have storage enough that we don't end up having to be gouged on the market that happened to two years ago if you look at your electric bill you'll see those little lines on there where we're all going to be paying for that for the next 20 or 30 years and uh, where that's being being paid off so we're trying very hard to make sure that never ever happens happens again and that has to do with storage capacity that has to do with building our infrastructure and so working with the oil oil and gas industry I've got a piece of legislation out there that we're it's it's kind of a kind of a big bite at what we're trying to do but the money that we were going to spend trying to lure a battery company to come to Oklahoma that never happened is 698 million dollars so I've got a bill that says that we're going to take that $698 million and instead of trying to lure an outside of the country company to come to Oklahoma, actually use that to build our infrastructure within the state of Oklahoma and support the industries that already are here and already support us. So it's working on that with the Petroleum Alliance um, and the, the energy sector and the utility sector trying to come up with a, a uh, program. It's very similar to what Texas has already done. Texas, Texas did a program that basically incentivizes companies to use natural gas to build out the grid so we have plenty of electricity in our, in our state so that's kind of what we're it's a kind of a, it's a big tough lift but that's one thing that we're that we're working on so uh but the security of our grid and making sure that when you all flip the switch power comes on is a big deal and so um with the demand and the growth of the state it's continuing to be, be a big deal but it's it's something that, that we are working on and trying to find the, the, the right way to incentivize companies within this state um, another deal that I continue to work on, y'all were here, some of y'all were here when uh, Attorney General Drummond was here. Um, I continue to work with the Attorney General on marijuana issues. And, and I will point out the three bills that I'm working on and, and why I'm working on them. One is with the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority. One of them is with the, um, the Bureau of Narcotics. And one of them was with the Attorney General's office. We're running three bills in this area. If you look back at what the voters voted for with medical marijuana back in 2018, the concept was mom and pop businesses providing a product for people that were sick. 
That's what the voters voted for. What we ended up with was a bunch of foreign cartels coming into our state because the laws were so open um, that Oklahoma became the major supplier of marijuana for the entire nation. It was easier to put your operation here in Oklahoma than it was to, to bring the drugs in from Mexico. So Oklahoma became ground zero for that to happen. Um, with the changes that we've made in the last few years and giving the, the Bureau of Narcotics especially the ability to do some of the things they've been doing, and working with the Attorney General's Office and Medical Marijuana Authority, which really has our feet under them now, we have taken the number of licensed grows in Oklahoma from, from the maximum two or three years ago, about 12,500 licensed grows in the state of Oklahoma. We're down to about 3,000 now. And so a lot of that is because we now have the ability to enforce things. The bills that I'm working for, working on with the Medical Marijuana Authority and the, um, and the uh, Attorney General's Office, is the bill that deals with um, transferring of, of licenses. Right now, you can have a license in one place, and you can just, you know, if you get shut down, you're basically pulling the license out of the filing cabinet, and because you bought all these licenses, we're making it where that's not as, not as easy to do. Once again, we're not trying to go after the mom and pops. That's never anybody's intent. We're trying to respect the vote of the people. But last year, the people had a chance to vote again when the recreational ballot came up, and 63% of the voters said enough's enough. And so we're tr we finally got a got a hold on this thing. We're we're trying to get it to where we go back to what the voters actually intended. There's uh there's calls for an actual all-out repeal of state question 788. Um, that will probably not happen because most voters don't want that. They want heavy regulation on this. They want it to be a regulated industry, and uh, especially when it comes to our kids, which is comes to the third bill that I'm working on. And this is kind of working in conjunction with the Department of Ag and the Mer Medical Marijuana Authority. The creativity of a lot of people putting illicit things in our stores is when you talk about it, and I'll get kind of in the weeds, the Delta 9s and the Delta 8s when it comes into the THCs. Um, there are products out there now that are being put in stores that look like candy. It's not candy. And it's stuff that, you know, you think it's okay, but they're getting around, they're skirting around the laws. So, um, and it's, it's products that are, they are hallucinogenics. They don't have THC in them, but they're, they're altered chemically, and uh, they can be extremely dangerous, and they are killing kids all across the nation. And because they, they end up in convenience stores, and they look like it's just a, a package of bubble gum. And so parents don't know what these kids are buying. So you got those kind of things, the vape products that are out there, that stuff are being put in there. And those, you know, when, it, when you talk to some of the young people, they now have vapes that look like highlighters. So kids can take these things into the classroom. And they make the vape stuff. There's not been an odor to it, so kids are actually getting high while they're in the classrooms. So there, <laughs> this, there's, there's, there's a whole new realm out there that we're trying to deal with and trying to keep regulatory control over. And it is a never-ending battle because as soon as you fix one side, they come up with a new creative way to make make their products. And so, um, but you have a lot of good agencies that are working hard on it and trying trying to get that under control. And so it's it's a never-ending battle. I'm very. It's one of the more proud things that I deal with is trying to trying to get this get this in an area that we can we can make walking into convenience stores safer for our kids. And uh, and it's not every convenience store, but some of them, you know, they they, they cater to this stuff. And so we'll continue to to work on that. Um, another thing was I noticed last year it kind of deals with the, with the medical marijuana issue. So I've been a volunteer firefighter in my community of Tuttle for the last 32 years. Still do it, not obviously not nearly as much as I used to. I try to respond when I can. Um, last year I responded to a call and it was a car wreck call on Highway 37 east of Tuttle where a car had ran under the back of a parked semi that had that had broken down. Fortunately nobody was hurt. 
Um, there had been a passenger in the car that would not have been the case. It would have been a fatality. The driver um, was a young lady. When we got to the car, she was getting herself out of the car, so she was going to be fine. She walked away from the accident, very fortunate. But you pretty well got a contact high walking up to that car with how much marijuana smoke was coming out of that car. She was hiring a kite. Um, she ends up getting to her mother's car with the police standing right there, and they, they drive off. So I went to the officer, and I said, how, how did that happen? How did, if that was alcohol... You know, they blow into the breathalyzer. We have a chemical test, and, 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 and they're going to have to pay for that. They're going to have to go through, through a process. Hopefully, you get where they don't do that anymore. Hopefully, they get the treatment they need or maybe get stung a little bit in the criminal justice system to where they don't do that because they could have killed somebody. But because it's marijuana, um, it seemed like they didn't have the ability to test those people because THC stays in your system for 30 days, so you can't just take a chemical test and know how high somebody was. So that was my observation, just being out there on the street that day. When I talked to the officer, he said, he goes, we don't have the resources. We're going to lose in court if we try to say we know she was high because they're not trained experts in that field. Um, and so there's another thing he brought up was, was the, the, uh, the McGirt issue because she's actually a tribal member and Tuttle's in the tribal area just like Chickasha is. And so he had an, they had an issue with, with that as well, so they just let her go. And so um, I'm working on a deal. I talked to the Department of Public Safety about the issue that I saw. Talked to some small town um, law enforcement, and they said one of the problems is is they only have four or five officers. They can't afford to send someone to class for two weeks. And so because someone's got to fill in those gaps, or they're going to have a gap in, in in their patrols. So we're doing a. And this is kind of something I just kind of came up with. Work with the Department <coughs> of Public Safety is a pilot program. It's called DRE, Drug Recognition Experts. Because if you go through the classes as a police officer, then you go to court and testify, it's hard for a defense attorney to tear you down. And uh, so it gives, when they've gone through the classes, they can, they can identify that somebody actually is intoxicated, not by alcohol, but by some, impaired by some type of a drug. So that, that bill's out there. It's just a pilot program. It's just $500,000 this year. Hopefully, we'll need a lot more next year because a lot of cities utilize it, cities and counties. Any smaller departments are trying to put a cap on what size of the city. I don't want Oklahoma City using it. But smaller communities, I want them to be able to send their officers. And what they'd use the money for is to pay overtime to their existing officers so they can cover that spot while that officer's in training. So that's kind of stuff that we're working on. Just kind of, you know, there's a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of details in there that we've still got to work out. But you know, sometimes just observation out there, um, and uh, it's observation by people like you all. I get calls from you all, and sometimes, you know ideas that come to me from the community that's what ends up as legislation and sometimes ends up being signed into law we did it last year with with a local fire chief that had contacted me about an issue we actually ran that legislation and got it through the entire legislative process and it became law and that started just as an idea of a person in, in a community um so always appreciate that it's it's uh it's interesting where those bills actually some good ideas you know come from and so it's not just from the lobbyists it's not just from legislators it's from everyday citizens that just just experience things in their everyday life just like i did on the highway that day as a volunteer firefighter i wasn't out there as a senator i was out there as a total volunteer firefighter and observed that hey we got a problem that people are just getting away with driving high and it's actually become a bigger and bigger problem and the recognition part of that's an issue so we'll continue to work on that as well um so there's a lot of other things going on. I think I've got about 20 bills that I'm working on that are Senate bills this year. They all kind of center a lot to the energy sector because that's that's kind of what I work with now. Um, and uh, but they they kind of float around everywhere else. Um, so the other committees I'm on, I'm on the education committee. I'm, 
the uh, Agriculture Committee, and I'm also an assistant floor leader. Assistant floor leader in the Senate, we have the, the floor leader who's currently Greg McCourtney, and he has two assistants. We're the ones that are tasked with reviewing every single bill that's filed and assigning those to, uh, to a committee. And so we're in the process of that now. I've got a, I think, a seven-hour meeting scheduled on Wednesday where I'll be at the Capitol doing nothing but assigning those bills to, to committees. And I think we have about... I think we have about 800, 800, 850 bills this year that we have to get assigned. And then when the committees hear those bills and they start coming through committees, then they come back to the to the floor leader's office and we decide when they end up on the on the floor of the, of the Senate. So um, so that's kind of the floor leader's office gets to be really busy. If, uh, if it's springtime, that's usually when we're, everything's coming to a head. All the House bills are still out there, Senate bills are still out there, can still be heard. And the floor leader's office is trying to decide which ones end up on the floor and when they end up on the floor. So it stays busy. And uh, my real-life job, I'm an insurance agent in Tuttle, and I've been doing that for 27 years, and that's where I was at this morning, and that's where I'll be back when I'm through today. And trying to manage that um, is always a challenge. I usually am at my insurance office at about 6 o'clock every morning during session. Fortunately, I come home every night. I'm 38 miles from the Capitol, so I get to go home. Couldn't do this job if I had to stay stay up there. I think Representative Lowe would agree with that. It's just it is the, uh, the uh, um, when the front tires of my truck, hit the gravel of my driveway on the way home, my blood pressure starts coming back down. And so it is, it is, uh, it's, I, I, I couldn't do it. I get to go home and see my wife, see my dogs, see my cattle. It just kind of gets you back, back into the realm of, okay, then you go back and start in the day. But I do swing by the insurance office every morning, uh, trying to keep that office going. That's why sometimes I get frustrated with Governor Stitt as much as I support him and we're friends. But like this special session call and what I told one of his staff members, I said, you know, I said, I said, I'm an insurance guy. I said, I have a lot of farm customers. I have people that need to see me, that I need to see, and I'm going to be gone the next four months. So I've got 32 appointments scheduled the week before I go to session. And that's the week he calls special session. And so sometimes it's a little bit of a slap in the face of those of us who are kind of the citizen legislator mode, where you're actually trying to still work in the private sector and raise your family and do all that stuff, and then they throw this on top of it. So this isn't me whining. This is me griping, I guess. And, uh, and, uh, and so, and so uh, and I, when I explained that, I told the governor that before. I said, you know, you're a private business guy. I said, you know, there's a lot of us still doing that. And that's, you know, I think there's, there's an advantage to being still in the private sector because you kind of see what all is going on. Um, I think we got a great mix of the capital. There's a lot of retired people there. There's a lot of former government workers in there. There's a lot of private sector people in there. There's a good mix in the legislature, and that works out really well. We had a couple of young men who were elected to the state house the year I got elected in 2016. They were 21 years old. That's how old you have to be to be a house member is 21. And I kind of was a little bit dismissive of their ability to do their job until... I kind of stepped back and thought about it. You know, we don't just need a bunch of old guys up there. You do need a couple young people because it brings a totally different perspective that maybe I don't don't know about. They obviously would know how to use a computer better than I would, but but uh, but they but they also bring a perspective that maybe I don't know because I'm not talking to 21 year olds. Um, but it just so happens one of them turned out to be a uh, actually both of those guys. One of them ran for Congress last year and came in second, and the other one is about to be elected the next pro, uh, next Speaker of the House. Wow. So uh, two two very bright young men that uh, that my first reaction was the wrong one, and uh, and we're not going to 
I stepped back and thought about it, and they both turned out to be really, really great leaders. And and uh, and so, but it's good to have those different perspectives. So there's people I disagree with, but I do want to hear hear their hear their perspective on where they're coming from. So that's just a little rundown of what's going on. It's going to be once again a busy year. It's an election year. It's you know every even numbered year is a uh, is is an election year. So um, that always kind of changes the mix of everything. Filing is in is in April. Anyway, I'd love, love to open up for questions. Anybody has any questions about what's going on or how everything's going? I'd be happy to answer. Um, Kayla Hale, I'm the president of the University of Science and Arts of Oklahoma. First, just thank you so much uh, for your leadership and advocacy for us. On the education um, committee, I know there's been conversations about um, an appropriation, perhaps one time, for what I would consider some of the state's largest assets, which are state universities and colleges, and, um, and a, an allocation for deferred maintenance, which not just for our school, but for our community. That would be putting a lot of people to work. Um, it would be a really uh, big boon. Um, we're, we ran out of place to put students this year, happily. Uh, so we need to get uh, another dormitory along. But I'd like to know if you have any updates on that and what your thoughts are on those that the chances of getting that done. So, so right now, it depends on who you talk to, there's, there's roughly about two, two and a half billion dollars that are kind of sitting there that aren't really obligated in the rainy day fund that that's money that could be used on some of these projects i think with the legislation legislation that's been filed in the house and senate that's been spent about 30 times and so and so including the, the bill that i have on the energy deal that's 698 million dollars so um all that's going to be considered and so that's so what what we need is people like you to come to meetings like this and make sure that we're aware of that i knew that was out there i don't know the details of it i just I, i've just heard the discussions that that's one of the items that's going to be discussed this year so um there there's lots of uh i know uh there's the legislation that i've seen is what's in the senate side not the house side but i you know some of the requests is like to make legacy funds for different types of things there's things to bolster use that money for to bolster up the pension systems there's a, there's a lot of things out there i know that's one of them so um i know for how long ago it was we did a kind of a higher education bond issue i think back in the 90s that was a like a billion dollar deal or a 300 million dollar deal or something yeah. 90s were a long time ago and so uh, and so yes I, I know it's going to be considered i have not seen the actual details of the legislation Thank but you. do what y'all do best and come up there and and make sure that we know what's going on and what you all need because yes. it, it seems like i know last year was a a big increase in appropriations to higher ed mm -hmm. and and i know that deferred maintenance is still setting out there yeah so thank you, you very bet. much i'm just curious i heard on the radio that they have a pilot program since they're not receiving enough revenue through uh, taxes on gasoline. Uh, they're going to charge you by the mile. The state is. Mm -hmm. So there's. That's I'm kind of curious. Is that kind of illegal? No, it's I it's some device on my vehicle. Yeah, it's. It, I don't think it's a ODOT pilot program to see if something like that would work. So what the problem that's happening, and, and and I don't think this is going to be the solution, because that's kind of how, how they would do that. They would kind of track your mileage and, and tax you by the mile. The issue that's arisen with the, with the rise of electric vehicles is road maintenance is paid for by your gasoline taxes. And so when you have more fuel-efficient vehicles and when you have cars that don't use gasoline, it's kind of created an issue of where's that money for the road maintenance come from from somebody driving an electric car. So the concept kind of makes sense. Hey, let's just charge by the mile instead of by the gallon. 
But then how do you track those miles? That's where it gets to be a little bit. Um, um, I think a lot of people are going to get kind of creepy about that. I don't want the government telling me how many miles I drove last month and here it's, and, and along with an invoice. And so, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's one of those deals. There's a lot of things like right now, there's, there's going to be a couple thousand bills that have been filed. You know, I think it's like 15 to 20% or less than that become law. So a lot of ideas are out there, but this is a pilot program. I'm not, I'm not real familiar with the details other than I know it's out there and I know it's created lots of questions at lots of forums like this. Well, one thing, Lonnie, is on, on that, um, I'm watching insurance companies uh, adjust your premium for the mileage, and then you're not reporting it to get into Carfax. Yep. So you get your oil changes, stuff like that, but the mileage goes in there, and they're pulling off that VIN number, and they're watching your miles. Yeah, and there's some companies that have that, product where you actually volunteer for it and you right. put a device in your car so that's, they, well, that's yeah. driving Not to name any names. Yes. Yeah. This <laughs> is just flat out reporting so if they see a high usage they increase your premiums at that point. Yeah. So if you change your own oil they'll know, don't know how much that you're driving. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's not a whole lot of secrets. When you buy a car, you can go back and look, you know, because the Carfax stuff, if you go to a shop that's reporting all that, I mean, if it's, if, if it's had a dent, if it's had an oil change, it all pops up on the phone. Yeah.